Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Comics Collective, the weekly podcast where we talk about our favorite comic books and graphic novels, and on episodes like this, we talk to our favorite people making them. I am joined today by Ryan North, writer of Dinosaur Comics, Squirrel Girl, and most recently, The Fantastic Four. How's it going, Ryan? It's going great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I found out that you were the Ryan North that made Dinosaur Comics well after (laughs) I knew you as the Ryan North that made Squirrel Girl. And that, that, that was happens. quite the crossover for me. Yeah. It's like, I, I like love the... it in two ways. I love it when people are like, wait, is this the Dinosaur Comics guy who's doing Fantastic Four? Or being like, wait, Fantastic Four guy has a webcomic? Like both of those feel <laughs> like they're two yes. separate guys. But it's just me. I'm just the one guy. My On my very first date with my wife, she told me as like a fun fact about herself. She's like, I love comics. And I was immediately like, bing, 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 jackpot. And I was like, what are some of your favorite comics? She's like, oh, like the ones you see on Instagram. And Dinosaur Comics was one of the ones she said. And so oh, wow. to make her excited about this, I was like, the Dinosaur Comics guy. And she's like, no way. <laughs> like I finally made it in her mind. She's like, finally, some real comics. Yeah. I When we, this is jumping ahead a bit, but for issue, uh, I think it was 10 or maybe nine, we had uh, Dr. Doom on a T-Rex that was also dressed as Dr. Doom and also a Dr. Doom version of himself from another universe mm-hmm. with all dinosaurs and uh i had someone message me being like so you started with dinosaur comics now you have alex ross <laughs> drawing dinosaurs for you <laughs> is this where you thought you would be and i was like no i did not expect mr alex ross to be taking my suggestions of what to draw for covers and drawing a yeah. dr doom dinosaur for me yeah i mean that's got to be quite the through line right from using the exact same dinosaur picture over and over to getting to be the guy that tells us why dinosaurs have scales in Squirrel Girl to having <laughs> Alex Ross draw your Dr. Doom T-Rex. Like, I you're like living that. a dinosaur like kid's dream. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't realized that. Yeah, the dinosaur lens of my career is pretty interesting. <laughs> it's an interesting parabola to track there. <laughs> yeah. So for people that don't know, you've got your start in comic books with the webcomic Dinosaur Comics, mm-hmm. which... Caught the eye of an editor at Boom Comics, which got you Adventure Time Comics, which led to one of my personal favorite comics, The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk a little bit about The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl. I know Will Moss reached out to you and Erica Henderson, who we've had on the show. We love her work. What was that email like for you? And what was that process like for you making the leap into Squirrel Girl? We had worked before uh, briefly, uh, Will and I, on a Young Avengers miniseries. And so I, I was familiar with him. And I guess he didn't, he liked what I'd done. <laughs> he didn't hate it too much. <laughs> so I got an email from him. I think it was on a Friday where he was basically said, you know, hypothetically, um, if you were to write a Squirrel Girl book, what would that look like? Give me a pitch. And I remember thinking, Squirrel Girl, like, isn't she the one with squirrel powers? <laughs> is, that, is that what he's talking about? <laughs> so I took the weekend and I read um, all the Squirrel Girl comics I could, which wasn't a ton at that point. Read them all. Yeah. And uh, by the end of that weekend, I knew two things. I knew that I really wanted there to be a Squirrel Girl comic and I really wanted to be the guy writing it. So I sent him this pitch of like, here's what I want to do. It's going to be Doreen Green and she's going to fight Galactus in her first arc. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> and uh, Will wrote back. He was like, great. Um, you know, terrific pitch, Ryan. Thank you. But is there anyone else? Does she have any friends? Like, <laughs> this is just Doreen Galactus. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yes, that is something a professional cartoonist would do. 
And so that's where uh, Nancy and Koi Boy and Chipmunk and the rest came from. And uh, every time someone asks this question, I always try to give Will credit where it's due because in that first draft of issue one that I sent him, it ended with, uh, well, it had Doreen defeating Craven like she does in the actual book. But she does it by, I believe it was stuffing squirrels down his pants, like what she imagines doing the final comic. (laughs) And Will gave me back the note that was like, you know, I like this, but Doreen Green always struck me as the kind of person who tries to help people with their problems. And Mm -hmm. it was like seeing the answer key at the back of the book. Like that's when the character crystallized. I was like, yes, Mm -hmm. yes, that is who she is. Ignore this draft of sending you a new one where she's going to help Craven what his actual problem is and solve it that way. And that became, I think, the defining trait of the character is her empathy and her yeah. consideration and her, her willingness to look for reasonable solutions to superhero problems. Um, and that's that had its origin with a great note from Will. Like, editors are terrific. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting because it feels like such an integral part of that character and that run in general. It's interesting mm-hmm. to see that it, it came in after a draft was already done. At the last I, minute, yeah. But it's it's it's... I like Star Trek, and if you look at, you know, the first almost two seasons of Star Trek Next Generation, they don't really become who they are until later Mm -hmm. on. Like, the the actress is still figuring it out, the creative team, the writers are still figuring it out, and a first issue of a comic is basically like a pilot where you've got these characters on paper and the story on paper, but until you write it, you don't really meet the people and don't know how they actually interact. And -hmm. for me, it was that second draft where Doreen became not just a woman with squirrel powers, but someone who was thoughtful. And that thoughtfulness dovetailed nicely with the cleverness that she already had to become uh, this character that in real life is not that exceptional. Like she's someone who would rather have a conversation than a fist fight. And I feel like that's most yeah. of us, <laughs> probably yeah. both of us right now. Um, <laughs> but inside a superhero context, that does become a bit more revolutionary and makes her a bit more like a breath of fresh air. And it made her... Uh, very distinctive to write because a squirrel girl story is a Doreen Green story. You can't sub in a different hero because they're not going to approach the problems the way she does. And so when the book ended at issue 50, it felt like, um, it didn't feel like, okay, so what's the next gig? It was like, okay, we've spent our time with this person. And I felt, I think Eric and I and Derek, we all felt like Enrico and and Will and and Sarah and everyone else, we felt like um, we had raised this kid And now we're sending her off to school. So she's out of our control. She's out in the world, but we've given her the tools she needs, hopefully, to uh, survive and thrive out there. And that's kind of the fun when you get to to have a run in a character for so long and kind of reinvent them in that way is that you, hopefully, ideally, not to my own horn, but I feel like you try to put your mark on that character so that whoever comes next, whoever gets to play with her next, um, will carry some of those elements forward. That's my hope. Yeah. Speaking of reinvention of character, whenever we talk about reinventing a character, I always think of Alan Moore's story about like trying to be Swamp Thing, like sitting in a tub full of muck and like, what would a monster (laughs) think? Did you find yourself thinking more like Doreen Green as you were writing this? Or how did how did approaching problems the way Doreen Green would affect you as a writer? Uh, She's kind of my ideal self. I think she's a lot of her ideal selves. Um, She is someone who will ask, like, why are we fighting? What what is the conflict here? How do we how do we fix this? And I feel like that's the person a lot of us want to be, right? The person who's like, yeah. yes, let's approach this reasonably and find a solution that everyone is happy with. That's hard. Like that is 
a lot harder than uh, punching someone or knocking them into the moon or something. So it, it helped, I think, it helped me as a writer because it gave her something fresh to say and do in the superhero context. And it also made her uh, impossible to cheat with. She was a very smart young woman. And so she had to have these solutions that a smart young woman would come up with. You couldn't just mm -hmm. take the easy solution of a punch up or, you know, you punched a, the bad guy until he stopped doing crimes. Cause that's, that's not a Doreen green story. That's not, she's not going to be happy with that. Um, yeah. It also made us that if I went for a walk as a break, I would see squirrels. They'd be like, I'm going to get back to it. I'm just taking a break <laughs> right now. Like, they're everywhere in Toronto. Oh, it's so funny. The names for the squirrels, are those things that you like crowdsourced at all? Or did you come up with every single one of those squirrel names? Because they cracked me. Uh, I, like every new one was a treat. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think they were all original. Um, a couple were shout outs to friends. I put friends' names there. There's a squirrel named Emily's baby because my friend Emily was having a baby. <laughs> Throwing a <laughs> shout out to like the earliest possible shout out to that child. Um yeah, they were. There was one episode, one episode, one issue where she lists a bunch of them for Nancy, just for like a page or two. Yeah, and it was fun. Just think of like the names on their own, names that work with with other names. So you're sort of building running jokes out of the names. But yeah, there was a a rare opportunity to just like here are some jokes, here are some cool names <laughs> for squirrels. <laughs> So obviously your very first comic project, Dinosaur Comics, is built off of the ability to tell a joke within a comic book setting and specifically like mm -hmm. a word-based joke. How, I guess, how do you approach writing jokes for the comic book medium? Because it's not like stand-up comedy where you can control the pacing perfectly or you can read the room right away. Like, yeah. I feel like selling a joke in a written format is so hard. You just have to walk away at some point like, Sure hope that's funny to anyone yeah. other than me. It is. It absolutely is. But I think it's actually easier in comics for a couple reasons than just in straight prose. And that is uh, you have characters on the page acting. So you see mm -hmm. their facial expressions. And you have great control over timing, the way you break the panels. And if you want a moment of silence, you can have a beat panel where there's no words. And it hits as that moment of silence. But the biggest one is... Um, in comics, you have full control over where the page turns are. In prose, yes. you don't know where your words are going to land on the page. But I could structure and did structure Squirrel Girl so that there was a joke at the end of every page or a question that got answered at the top of the next page or something that could carry you forward. So you kept feeling like this book was in conversation with you and would carry you through it very smoothly rather than just have... I think of a comic as a collection of 20 pages more than a collection of, you know, 200 panels. The mm -hmm. fundamental unit is the page. And when you're, you think of it that way, um, I think comedy can become a lot easier because you have so much control, almost as much control as a stand-up comic does. You don't get to see the audience reaction, but you get to guide them where you want them to go pretty subtly, which is powerful. Yeah. Are those things you just picked up from doing so many years of dinosaur comics before moving into the direct market? Or do you feel like there was still a lot of learning over the course of Squirrel Girl? Uh, dinosaur comics definitely taught me uh, how to tell a joke within constraints. <laughs> it's the same six yeah. panels every day. I can't change them. Um, yeah. And then once you go from that to something more wide open, um, there is a lot of freedom. Uh, but I remember uh, cartoonist Andy Runton telling me that you need to give the reader a reason to turn the page. 
Like you, you do yeah. have to think of these as pages. And that is such a valuable tip because when you do it right, when you have that punchline or that question or that mini cliffhanger at the end of each page, the reader doesn't notice it, but it gives them this sense of, I want to know what happens next for the whole issue until you run out of page and they're like, oh man, I got to see the next one. And it really, I think, sucks you in and makes the book uh, come alive in a way that is a lot harder when you don't have that aspect, when it's just words on a page, and you don't know where the words are on the page. You don't have that control. Yeah. When did you know the Squirrel Girl was going to be a book that had the kind of legs that most comics don't in today's market? Like 50 issues is <laughs> a lot. Yeah, 58, actually, because we, we restarted with number one yeah. twice, or just once, two number ones. Um, it's funny. There was a moment early on around issue three or four, I think, where Will Moss, our editor, emailed us and said, hey, you know, this book has been picked up by uh, the Scholastic Book Club, and that's a big deal. And I was like, okay, sure. And then we had, before that, I think, the first five issues were reprinted several times. We'd end up doing variant covers where we tell a whole, like, eat nuts, kicks butts with one word in each of those covers and an exclamation point one of them. It was, like, crazy. But I was a baby. I didn't realize that this was not normal. Like, there's, I think it's partly Canadian modesty where, like, yeah, this is probably, like, we're reprinting, but they probably just underprinted for scarcity reasons. And, <laughs> you know, you can always, I can always undermine myself very easily. <laughs> and so it was a while where it sort of gradually sunk in that I don't think people were expecting a book about a, a woman with squirrel powers and her best friend, a talking squirrel to be, uh, become when it ended the highest numbered comic Marvel had that wasn't star Wars. <laughs> like it was yeah. this long running book. Um, and that was great. And it was a great privilege to get to spend not just that much time with the character, but also to bring the character in for a landing for a conclusion. Like we didn't get to the thing you're always afraid of, which is, okay, we're out of time. The next issue is your last wrap things up really quick. Like we were yeah. like, we're going to do a final arc. We're going to bring everything. We'll have this conclusion that I've had in mind since issue eight to actually wrap things up nicely and make it feel like a cohesive work. And that uh, yeah. is great, I think, for the book. And I was really glad we got to do that, like make it feel like a complete cohesive whole and not just we did it until we stopped. Yeah. And I think with a book like Squirrel Girl that feels so fleshed out, it's easy in hindsight to look back and say, oh, they had 58 issues. That's why this book feels so full and feels so lived in. But I think actually reading Squirrel Girl, because we we covered Squirrel Girl on this show and we looked at it and we said, all right, it's a Marvel, modern Marvel comic. We can probably read 30 or so of these issues in an episode. And we underestimated how dense <laughs> Squirrel Girl was. And I was yeah. very happy. I was like, they don't make comics like this anymore. But also on Friday night, when I was like, I can't go out with friends because I underestimated how dense Squirrel Girl is. I, I guess... I want to talk about that. Like that's, that is just not the modern comic book approach is, was that an intentional decision you made to make Squirrel Girl dense as a book to really help us get our $4 worth? Or is that just sort of your writing style coming through in Squirrel Girl? It's a bit of both. Uh, comics, as you know, is a not inexpensive hobby. And I really like the idea that with Squirrel Girl, like we are literally cramming jokes in the margins. You're getting your full yes. values worth from this. Um, the other half path is me as a writer. Um, I feel like I like comics that feel like something happened in them. 
mm-hmm. uh, that you don't want to feel like you read part three of seven. You want to feel like that was a cool adventure. Yes. And so because of that, I tend to uh, go a little bit more dense to get as much narrative, as much character, as much jokes, as much everything else into this book. And, you know, the, the fact remains that as a comic writer, you will spend, your team spends months putting that book together and you can read it in five minutes. Mm-hmm. But with Squirrel Girl, you might take like eight minutes. <laughs> and that's, that's a victory for us. Huge win. Those extra three minutes, that's your victory yeah. lap as the Squirrel Girl team. Yeah. But it also like, it's a book that I think invites and maybe demands that you slow down a bit where yeah. it is going to be like, there are some concepts here. Like we're going to, we're going to explain how binary counting works on your fingers. And mm-hmm. you're going to want to slow down and understand that because it's important to the plot, but also it's cool that you can count to 31 on one hand. <laughs> Yeah, and this is something that you might want to know. So it's it uh, it's dense in the uh, lots of stuff sense, not in the uh, too hard to understand sense. Ideally, yeah. Well, I think it hits that perfect Silver Age Marvel ideal of I'm going to learn something. I'm going to spend time with people I care about, and we will do it in colorful costumes. Mm-hmm. Like I, whenever people ask me about quintessential Marvel comics, I always point to Squirrel Girl because I'm like, if you really look at this. It's doing what Stan injected with Fantastic Four. Like Stan Lee was making up pseudoscience, but Squirrel Girl is a sci-fi soap opera, right? Mm -hmm. And I love I love seeing that bleed through in your work, and we'll talk more about it with Fantastic Four. But you talked about Will Moss giving you the Doreen Green should solve this with her problem or with her words. When did you decide that Doreen Green was also going to use so much science to solve her problems? That was in the initial pitch. Um, my very first version, I talked to my wife, Jen, and I said, mm-hmm. I think I want her to be a computer science student because the joke about talking to squirrels, because before this, she had kind of been the butt of jokes, right? Like the joke mm-hmm. was she has these ridiculous powers and yet she's defeated these these major villains. Before that, the joke was, look at this woman with ridiculous powers. Like it, there wasn't, I didn't want to do a book where you're laughing at the character. I wanted you to laugh with her. And so I thought, well, you know, computer science is interesting because I don't know of any computer science superheroes that do actual computer science. There's there's super science. Like Reed Richards knows computers, but like Mm -hmm. I've never seen him talk about, you know, stepping through the machine code of a program to find a memory leak. (laughs) Like he doesn't do that sort of computer science. And then draft two, I changed her to an English major because I was like, I'm suspicious of myself because I've studied computer science. Am I just making this too easy? And I ran it past Jen again, and she was like, why are you doing this? Like, computer science was so much more interesting and so much yeah. more fun. Nothing against English majors, but, like, this put her in the STEM field, and there mm-hmm. are, uh, historically, uh, a lack of women there. My first graduate, or my first undergrad course, uh, school had, like, 50 people in the, in the class, and two of them were women. And there's no reason for that besides cultural. Like, there's nothing about men that yeah. can better computers. And so there was some value in the representation of her being a CS student. And also for me, I was more excited about doing that. So I switched back to CS student and that was there from the very first pitch that Will uh, Moss got to see. I love that. I mean, as someone who is decidedly not STEM, I still found it so fun. Like I really, yeah, yeah. I, that's the goal. Yeah. I was the person I was like, I'm going to take all AP classes. Then I got to AP chemistry and I was like, I'm going to take a normal class like this. 
I have never been taken to the mat so quickly as I was with AP chemistry, but it was still like I learning, you cited this, but learning to count binary with my hands, I invited my wife over to look at the page. I was like, look at what you could do with your fingers. And she is very (laughs) STEM. So she's like, oh yeah, it's the only way to do it. And I was like, you guys, look at you guys. Yeah. The funny thing with that sequence is you can see it in the page too. Uh, I initially drafted as, as Doreen, like showing you one, two, three, four. Mm-hmm. And uh, four is just your middle finger raised. And Will was like, let's not have a panel where Doreen is flipping off the audience. And so we cut away for that. And I got an email from be like, I see what you did there, North. You do one, two, three, and five. I know what's happening here. <laughs> That's really good. I think another aspect uh, that of this Marvel equation, right? Sci-fi soap opera is how fleshed out your supporting cast of the unbeatable squirrel girl is where as part of the diminishing page count and just the style of storytelling in 21st century superhero comics, the Mm -hmm. non powered supporting cast has largely gone by the wayside. And I think what's so refreshing about the unbeatable squirrel girl is that it does the exact opposite of that. Like we had an issue where Nancy Whitehead was the main POV character and we spent most of the issue with her. And that just doesn't happen in other comic books. And it felt so fresh and lived in. Can you talk a little bit about maintaining a supporting cast in a book like Squirrel Girl? Yeah, um, I think it's sort of how you view the characters. I remember when I was a kid, I was puzzled why anyone would like certain characters because there are other characters who are more powerful. Like, why would you mm-hmm. like a different superhero when Superman can do what he does or she does? Yeah. Like, You go from it powers first. But if you go from it personality first, I don't think anyone looks at Nancy Whitehead and says, yeah, she's okay. But if she could fly and shoot lasers out of her eyes and bend steel beams, <laughs> then we'd have a character we're talking about, right? There's no, there's no absence her in her from those lack of superpowers. So I never felt like they were missing anything. I felt it made it more fun to have Doreen have this best friend, have this roommate, have this partner who doesn't have these powers that she has, but that doesn't mean she's dead weight. That doesn't mean she can't contribute. Like these are people who think about problems a lot and she can think with the best of them. Mm-hmm. So for me, the the joy of the supporting cast is seeing those relationships develop over time. Like yeah. we knew that... Doreen and Nancy would be important to each other from the pitch, but we didn't know how, where the relationship would go or how important the relationship would become until you have an issue like uh, issue 31, where they spend basically their whole lives together stuck in a moment in time. And yeah, thanks for that. It thanks for that one. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was really, that was a really sweet one. It was. Um, but that speaks to the importance of that relationship between these two women, that this would be something that they would, fall into but then want to do and and want to live their lives um so for me it sort of begins with the the personality and i never really feel that lack of power it's the same thing with fantastic four i remember looking at alicia and being like alicia is great and we haven't done a ton with her in 60 years because she's normally just treated as the blind person who can i guess maybe take care of franklin like there's not a lot of room for her on the fantastic four Mm-hmm. And I felt like, well, I think there should, I think there can be because now Dan married her to Ben, which was great. They're married. He's their partners. And there's a lot that someone can do on the team 
even the Fantastic Four <laughs> without having powers. I don't feel like it's a limitation. So oh, um, that's sort of my my idea behind it. Well, it just it makes it feel real and lived in, right? Like there are people in your life that don't have, if we say a superpower is like the primary interest of this character, right? Like there are not only peers, but friends in your life that will not share those same interests with you. And it makes you feel like a more fleshed out, lived in person. Like when the Fantastic Four are all science fiction heroes, it does a lot to bring the perspective of Alicia in. It does a lot to have them bounce off of her and her talents that they don't share. And I think it also uh, keeps the heroes grounded in a real way. Like it's not like you gain superpowers and then do you leave your life behind? Are you not associating with non superpowered people? Like it gets to be this weird sort of class. Uh, I don't even know what you call it, but when you have them with regular people and they're all treated at the same level, it makes to me it makes the heroes feel a lot more. Like they're good people. <laughs> they're not just, oh, I have, I have powers yeah. now, so I'll be off in space. Enjoy Earth. I'm off to go have my space adventures, see you never. Yeah. It, Egalitarian, I guess, in a weird way. Yeah, it, it makes them feel jerks. less insular. Yeah. Yes, yeah. It's It keeps you away from like the perpetual superhero civil wars, right? Like At any point when your superhero hasn't talked to a normal person in... 15 issues you are within three arcs of a civil war is basically <laughs> the arc of modern superhero comics this is like, why oh. batman's so good because his whole family doesn't have powers so they're always talking to people without powers exactly he That's sits down with all those kids and he's like look at you none of you have a single power <laughs> <laughs> but you make it work god bless you <laughs> and they're like you know you don't have powers either and he's like you guys you normal folks one day you'll learn. Yeah, someday you can be like me, Batman. <laughs> <laughs> I I need to know, for the Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, before I move on, did you have a favorite arc to work on? Oh, wow. That's a good question. Um, there's two. There's an arc around issue 30, I think, uh, with Craven and Squirrel Girl, where they do an escape room, and then Craven gets arrested for yes. past crimes. And it's this whole story about Craven sort of reckoning with what he's done. And uh, Doreen being like, I thought we were friends. I thought you were a good guy. And Craven be like, I am. <laughs> That's the old Craven. Like, forget about him. You can't change the past. It was, I really liked yeah. it for a couple of reasons. The initial inspiration was, uh, how do I reconcile who Craven has become in our book with the craven that he makes guest appearances in other books where he seems to be slipping or, or digress degrading and how do we how do we make those square but it became this really interesting comic about like justice and regret and trying to escape choices you've made and Doreen has to reckon with this idea of is someone like Craven the Hunter who has hunted Spider-Man <laughs> intending to yeah. kill him? Like, can he, is, does he deserve grace? Does he deserve forgiveness? Can she forgive him? And she gives him that grace. And the last panel is him, you know, trying to be worthy of it and trying to be a hero. And I thought that was, that was fun and interesting. And um, it let me slip in the subtlest pun ever where they're on trial and Doreen is asked under oath if she thinks Craven's a good guy. And she says, in my book, he's a hero, which is <laughs> talking about the comic and also herself. <laughs> and the other one that I enjoyed a lot was the final arc. Um, so spoilers if you haven't read it, but 
this was an idea I had early on where after we finished that first Galactus arc, I was like, you know what? It would be such a great bookend if Drain was on the ropes and she's about to get killed and this like giant purple boot comes down to defend her and it's Galactus because mm-hmm. they're friends. And so I held on to that for the whole five-year run and getting to do it was satisfying, but also like getting to have that last issue where it's basically her on the moon talking to space God <laughs> about how yeah. uh, the book is ending. They don't, they don't break the fourth wall, but Galactus is like, when we meet each other again, we're going to be different people and we won't be the same. And that's the defining quality of life is that things change. You're not the same. That's what life is. It's changing and evolving. And I like that because it felt important to me, but it also felt like we had all these people in the letters pages talking about how this was their first book and they learned to read on Squirrel Girl. This is the first comic they liked. And I felt a responsibility to not just be like, well, everything you love will die. (laughs) See you later. (laughs) So here it was a chance to be like, this is ending, but the adventures are still there. I can always reread them. We'll be able to go back and tell each other our favorite stories in the future. Like it, it felt almost like a chance to talk about death in the context of a comic book ending, which is normally not treated in such yeah. sort of heady terms, but it worked for Dream. It really, I think, I mean, I read that comic and I cry. <laughs> so it worked yeah. for me. And yeah. I got, um, I got Erica and I got Will Derek, I think we all I think it worked for all of us. So that's all you can do, right? Is write something that hopefully works for you, and then hopefully the people will like it too. I I felt so foolish for not anticipating the Galactus boot, and so happy when I saw the Galactus boot. Well, it hadn't been mentioned for book. years. <laughs> I know, I know, but I like I like I said before. I think before we recorded, but I love these these moments in comics where all of your I've read ten thousand of these skepticism goes away and you truly are like how will doreen get out of this one and mm-hmm. the galactus boot comes down and you're 10 years old again right like yeah, i didn't learn how to great. read with the unbeatable squirrel girl but i was right there with the kids who had just excited about what was going to happen oh, next that's awesome thank you i mean that was the other challenge to it was like me being very aware that this is something i want to have hit i want to be meaningful but it is a literal deus ex it is space yeah. god coming down and sorting things out and so this needs to work emotionally and narratively so it doesn't feel like a cop out the last issue <laughs> like i didn't want to feel like okay green's in trouble don't worry galactus will fix it the end thanks for reading like you have to do better than that to make it hit <laughs> yeah absolutely i think shifting gears a little bit another beautiful part of how much squirrel girl we got was also the fact of how consistent the two major art teams were with the first mm-hmm. half being you and Erica, the back half being you and Derek Charm. I I think the visual identity of the Unbeatable Squirrel Girl is another major factor of why it's so beloved. How did working with each of those two artists affect the book for you as the person writing the scripts? Yeah, for Erica, that's a it's obvious because she had been contacted by Will, our editor. And he had gotten her to do just a couple sketches of Squirrel Girl. Nothing for me. Just give us some Squirrel Girl sketches. And I had those open on a second monitor when I was writing the first issue. Because even those sketches that weren't our Squirrel Girl, but they were Erica's idea of what Squirrel Girl could be. And they had so much uh, personality and verve that I was mm-hmm. like, yes, this is this is what I'm aiming for. This is who this person is going to be. So she, just from her drawings, uh, helped define 
Doreen's personality and her her spunk and her ex, the way she's excited about ideas and all that was there in her sketches. And then uh, for Derek, I didn't realize afterwards that we were speaking about it. Like I had loved his work already. We'd worked before already. So I was like, yeah, Derek is amazing. He can just be dropped in here and pick up where Erica left off and he'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And later on, we're talking, he's like, you know, A, terrifying to follow another artist <laughs> like Eric Anderson. Yeah. And B, like we do, I think it was, we did the Craven arc and then we did, we did the Craven arc initially, which was, you know, an emotional arc. A lot of yeah. acting there he has to nail. And then we did a silent issue where there's no dialogue. So his art is entirely telling the story. And he's like, Ryan, you did kind of throw me in the deep end of the pool there. Where it's yeah. like, here's a super emotional story that's building everything's come before. And here's one where you were doing the whole storytelling. Please enjoy. Um, yeah. <laughs> but they're both uh, like, what a, what a privilege. What a, what luck to work with two artists back to back who were both so talented and both entirely got who Doreen was and would like, yeah. I read Derek issues and I read Eric issues and I don't get the sense that these are different people. They feel like they're Doreen continuously one person. And I have read books where the artist team changes and it's like hitting a brick wall where you're like, Oh, these aren't the same people anymore. They're not reacting Mm -hmm. the same way. Their expressions are all wrong. They don't, it just feels like this uncanny Valley of, you know, skin monsters who aren't the actual people. (laughs) And both of them uh, are great. (laughs) And both of them were able to never have that happen. It felt like Doreen the whole time. And it's, it's, I say all the time, like comic writing is the easy job. It takes 10 seconds to say on this page, Batman fights a thousand ninjas, takes all day to draw that. And the more subtle things of like making Doreen come to life, capturing her character, capturing the way she reacts to things in a movie, in a play, you have whole people doing just one character and putting all their thought into that, that comics, the artist is doing all that on their own. I can say Doreen looks surprised, but like there's so much acting on the page that they have to capture and yeah. they do, they make it feel, they make it look easy, both Erica and Derek alike. Yeah. And I mean, speaking with Erica a few months ago, even just simple things like Doreen Green having a different outfit on every issue, like that sounds so good. It's so good. It, it does so much to it make some people. Yes. They're not cartoon characters. They're people with outfits. And yes. it's like, Yes. Nancy dyes your hair red for five issues because sometimes people dye their hair. Doreen yes. has cute outfits when she's going out because she likes to have cute outfits on. Like it, None of that was in the script. I never said what they were wearing unless it was plot relevant because Erica has such a visual eye that she would come up with this stuff. Um, and yes. then Derek, when we in that Craven arc, mm-hmm. there was a splash of him leaning against his van. The focus was supposed to be the van because it has this amazing airbrush art on the side that mm-hmm. Erica and Joe Cajonas had done. But... Um, Derek designed this incredibly amazing, sexy look for like street clothes Craven. <laughs> it was just yes. like, oh my God, this guy cleans up nice. <laughs> like, <laughs> like he is a hero. He's my hero, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's I, just the choices that Derek made for like, what's this guy dressed like when he's not wearing a lion's chest, lion's head in his chest? Yes. I loved the like Squirrel Girl G.I. Joe Winter outfit at the end of the book oh, and the so Radicalist Art. I yes. listen, if there's anyone from Marvel listening, that's the action figure we want. We that want is the action figure. G.I. Joe and snowsuit. That was Derek's idea of the the hood covering her her mouth to give a little squirrel mm-hmm. nose. I'm like, that is so good. It yes. looks great. It's practical. I was like, damn, Derek. Yes. <laughs> this is great. It's also it's something, Doreen Green, it's something Doreen Green would have put on, right? Yeah. She 
it's cute and practical, just like Doreen Green. Yep. Yep. I love it. I love going, looping back a little bit to teaching people to count with binary with their hands, teaching all of us who don't know anything about computers enough to get ourselves in trouble. I also love your popular science books, How to Invent Everything and How to Take Over the World. Oh, thank you. And I I want to expose our comic book listening audience to those books a little bit because I think they're brilliant. So my, my first question is how does writing a popular science book like How to Take Over the World differ from writing the kind of science fiction vignettes that you do in, say, The Fantastic Four? So the thing with Fantastic Four is that um, they've long existed in the Stan and Jack world of comic book science where they can shrink and they can, you know, do all this fantastical stuff. Mm-hmm. And the way I the way I found through that with Squirrel Girl was, all right, she does real computer science. Like they exist in the world of, of pin particles, but the computer science is real and that worked well for her. Yeah. For Fantastic Four, the way I've been doing it is I try to take, keep the science as real as possible and then verge mm-hmm. into the fantastic when we need it to happen. So yeah. we'll have, you know, doom bots, but they're vulnerable to EMPs. So there's magical robots, but they do have actual science. And like, yeah. uh, we'll have uh, their biology get mirrored. So they're going to starve to death. And so they need to kill this mirror bacteria that's also been mirrored. And the way to do that is block out the sun all of which is reasonable. The magic science comes in in Sue blocking out the sun. So it's fantastical parts there. Uh, When you're writing a book like how to take over the world, where it's using actual science, you don't, you don't have that cheat. So if we want to do a story, turn doing a chapter on like having a secret floating base in Antarctica, you got to do the math and science to to make that work. You don't get repulsor rays to keep it floating. And that was the Mm -hmm. fun of it, right? Is I would get to research this and literally think of, well, how can I do this? with actual science and technology. Like what is the possible way to make this happen and have it not be a cheat, keep it as yeah. entirely in the realm of the real, um, which is, I think part of the joy of that book. And you learn like the actual science and technology and the bleeding edge of all this stuff, but through the lens of you're a supervillain trying to do take over the world schemes <laughs> and you want yeah. some detail. And now you have a book called how to take over the world on your bookshelf, which is amazing for anyone who owns a book. <laughs> It It is. It also makes you the most fun fact-filled person at any given gathering. Yes. Like I, I'm a dangerous person to start small talking with because I'll be like, have you ever heard of the great squirrel migration? I learned this from a squirrel <laughs> comic. Did you know you can actually float anything once you get it big enough over Antarctica? And they're like, stop talking yeah. to me. This is a mixer. <laughs> Let me go. I was like, there are crabs that you can do binary with. And they're like, leave me alone right now. <laughs> But yeah, that's, I think that's that's kind of the joy of those books. That's the joy of, of research, right? Is I love uh, when I was in grad school, I did this all the time, meeting other students and being like, what is the coolest thing that you've learned that you're doing in your studies? Yeah. Like, tell me the coolest thing about marine biology. Tell me the coolest thing about plant or an animal husbandry. Like, give me the neat stuff <laughs> because that's that's what makes it so interesting. And I remember uh, with How to Met Everything, the premise in that book is that uh, you've rented a time machine. It's really cheap and cruddy. You go back time and it breaks. Mm-hmm. And you have this repair guide. And the repair guide is like, you're not going to fix a time machine. <laughs> These are too complicated. Instead, <laughs> here's how you rebuild civilization from scratch. Sorry, please enjoy. And um, 
I remember for that, doing a chapter on uh, crop rotation and being like, this is going to be so dull. Like my mm-hmm. farming is super dull. And then as soon as you actually start learning about it, you learn, oh, I just thought farming was dull because I thought it was boring when I was six. And you look yeah. at the actual science and crop rotation, like this is really cool. Like we are hacking yeah. the earth to produce more food. And we've done it so efficiently that if we stop doing this, the earth couldn't support the 8 billion people we have right now. Like we would have half of those people starve to death. Yeah. That's how reliant we are on these little uh, technologies and, and techniques we've invented to make farming more productive. That's cool. <laughs> like, yeah. We are literally reliant on our smarts to keep things going. I think that's really neat. My favorite part of how to invent everything was the section where it told me that this was invented in China 800 years before it was ever invented in Europe. And then just like <laughs> reworking my entire American education system, every page of the book. Yeah. Just over and over yeah. again being like, man, and all the times that you in the book would be like, and we could have invented this at any given time. And no one thought, no one thought about a hot air balloon for a thousand years after we could have done it. Yep. And yep. it's just, I think that's some of the joy Wild. of that book is seeing the connecting lines between invention because like learning for me becomes interesting when it becomes connective, right? Mm-hmm. Any, any fact in a vacuum is just that. But when you can start to see the spider web between what you just learned and everything else, you know, you, it really, for me, at least it gets the gears going, gets me in a place where I want to talk about it with other people. And I think how to invent everything does that so, so well. Like I, I've gifted this book to so many people and we Thank talk you. about it constantly. <clears throat> my mother-in-law. Well, that was part of my, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. This will be the only episode of the show my mother-in-law ever listens to because she likes <laughs> how to invent everything so much. I'll give her a timestamp. Well, she sounds great. World girl. So she can just listen to this <laughs> section. <laughs> I was going to say that was part of my interest in writing it was that I had this idea of I want to do a tech tree for real life, which is at the back of the book. But to do that, Mm -hmm. I had to do all the technology in the book. And I can tell you that when you uh, write a nonfiction book, the way it normally works is you come up with a premise and you do like a demo table of contents and maybe one sample chapter. Here's what I want to write. And then the publisher says, great, we'll buy it, write the book. For how to invent everything, I wasn't sure what I was trying to do was actually possible because I wanted to write this book through the lens of a broken time machine, but mm-hmm. I want it to be real. I want it to be like a viable guide to rebuilding a tactical tactical civilization from scratch at any point in history. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that was possible. I didn't know that there was enough low-hanging fruit of technology that you could invent reasonably in one lifetime from scratch to, to make this a thing, to make this real. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote half the book until I was like, all right, there's enough here that I could actually go to a publisher and be like, I'm willing to commit to this. And you don't normally write like 50,000 words to be like, okay, yeah, I think there's something here. <laughs> I think this works. And do the research for those 50,000 words. Yeah. But I I was, it's important to me, both for that how to make everything and how to how to take over the world, that they do, they're real. Like they do what they say in the tin. There's no cheats. Yeah. It's not like, because I'd read some like how to be a supervillain books that were all focused on like, you know, get a cape and practice your evil laugh and stuff. I'm like, no, 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 Like the actual yeah. stuff, the meat and potatoes. Mm-hmm. Let's have that be authentic. And that was the fun for researching and hopefully the fun in reading and the fun that your mother-in-law uh, saw in it. Yeah, absolutely. So when you approach how to take over the world, is this a collection of like smaller things you're already interested in that become much larger or how did you create the table of contents for how to 
take over the world because like so many of these chapters I would not have thought about. And I was so delighted with each one. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I had some ideas of thought, things I thought might be possible. And then I just researched them and some of them were not possible. Those did not make it in the book. And some of them uh, were possible in ways I didn't expect. And some of them just, as you start researching, you start pulling on threads and seeing where they bring you. And yeah. um, the secret base chapter about building a floating base above Antarctica started as a footnote in the starting your own country chapter <laughs> of like, <laughs> here's some people who've tried something similar. And as I just research and research that footnote, the footnote becomes four pages long. Mm -hmm. And I was like, all right, well, let's, there's more here. There's some interesting stuff here. Let's actually flesh this out. And it becomes a whole new chapter. Um, the one that took me the most unexpected places was the one on uh, digging a hole to the center of the earth. I was like, how deep mm -hmm. can we go? And the more and more I research, the more I'm like, there is no way with credible science technology, even future stuff that we can foresee of this ever being achievable. Like this is just mm -hmm. too much heat, too much pressure. This is not going to work. But if you dig a hole sideways, <laughs> there's this company <laughs> in the States that's using it for high frequency trading because it effectively lets them see the future before anyone else can see it. And that's really interesting because now you have a yeah. infinite source, a reliable source of money because you know stuff before anyone else does. And we've all decided this is legal. We've all decided this is super yeah. cool and normal and it should be fine and no one should worry about it. And so it let, it was this really cool segue between like, we're going to dig a hole the earth's core to, to get gold to, well, let's dig a smaller hole sideways and just get an inexhaustible source of funds from the stock market. <laughs> If we've learned anything in the last few weeks, left to their own devices, people will dig tunnels. And your book yes. just told me the best tunnel to dig, frankly. <laughs> I love uh, a, I love a secret tunnel. Who doesn't? Who upon, like, I think discovering a secret tunnel is terrifying because then you are in a scary movie. But creating yes. said secret tunnel is delightful. Great. It's, it's like digging a hole at the beach for a full-time job. It's so good. Nothing demonstrates evolution better in my mind that we came from little vole shaped things in <laughs> era than how satisfying it is to dig a tunnel. Like you, people talk about your lizard brain, like that's your gopher brain right there. Yeah, you hid from yeah, dinosaurs like in those tunnels. <laughs> um, I guess, or do you have any other favorite sections from how to take over the world? You you hit right on the head of one of my favorites with the sideways tunnel. I grew up next to Kennecott Mine in Utah, so I am well acquainted with giant holes in the earth. So when I saw that, I was like, I already know the biggest one we've got. What What's Mr. <laughs> North going to have for me today? Um. I mean, they're all my favorites. It's like asking to choose the prettiest star in the sky. Yeah. I, I, I am really pleased with the chapter on ensuring you're never forgotten. Yes. Which basically boils down to how can we communicate reliably with people in the future? Mm -hmm. And the way that's set up is we talk about communicating with someone one year in the future, then 10 years and a hundred years and a thousand years and so on. And very quickly start hitting some really interesting problems of like language changes and biology changes mm -hmm. and assumptions of what a human is changes and the way that materials can even last that long without degrading becomes a concern and the more you solve these problems the more you start having to do more and more 
wild things until you're sending like messages into space and messages uh, carved in plastic to the Marinara Trench. I say I said that wrong. Is it Mariana? I always get it wrong because I am a cartoonist. (laughs) (laughs) The Marinara Trench. (laughs) These these ways to like preserve information. It's such a, I think, primal human urge to not want to be forgotten. So we all understand like why we'd want to do this, but also uncover such interesting problems of, you know, how can we do this? What is the longest lasting information? What is a reliable way to send a message from 2000 BC to 2000 BCE? Like what, how did, how did, was that accomplished? What happened? What had to happen? It's just, uh, I found it really fascinating to both research and communicate and was so pleased that at the end of that, I did have a way to, with a certain amount of confidence, ensure that you would not be forgotten billions of years in the future (laughs) and priced it all out. Like that's wild. (laughs) And priced it all out. That's the great, that's the tagline of that book is, and priced it all out. Yeah, for $56 billion and change, you can do every single scheme in that book. <laughs> and there are, I, I added it up and I was like, well, that's too much money. And there are 16 people who have that much in funds, personal yeah. wealth to do that. So it demonstrates how lackluster, just how lackluster our class of supervillain is nowadays. Yes. Just want no to sit on it. They just want to sit on it like a giant dragon. They don't want to do anything interesting <laughs> with it. They could at least send their corpse into space. Like there's potential. At that point, you're like, I, I have to respect the game a little bit. You're like, I don't agree <laughs> with your choices. I, I would have preferred schools and hospitals, but. But like you did launch yourself into space and <laughs> I respect your game, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wrong priorities. Great execution. <laughs> <laughs> so. Was there any overlap between creating your Doctor Doom handbook and writing the Fantastic Four, or were those two separate projects? None. They were completely separate, which is wild because in the introduction, I talk about how Doctor Doom was my favorite supervillain and how he's the best of all of them. And then the book comes out, and for unrelated reasons, I started working on Fantastic Four shortly thereafter. Uh, But no connection at all. Yeah. That's serendipitous, frankly. I thought for sure those led into each other. What was the what was your process for starting the Fantastic Four like? Um, I got an email from Tom Brevoort, the editor, and he, like Will before him, said, "Hey, you know, we're looking for Fantastic Four pitches." The difference there was Tom said this is a Bake Off, where mm-hmm. you basically solicit a bunch of creators to say what they would like to do, and then you take the idea you like the best. So, I think Bake Offs generally are not great. They're good when they tell you it's a bake off because then you know you're not putting a lot of work in with a guarantee of success. You're putting a lot of work in to hopefully go somewhere. So I did sort of a shorter document of here's kind of what I'd like to do. And Tom wrote back, said, interesting, interesting. Can you flesh this out some more? And I said, sure. And flesh it out more. And he came back with some more notes and I fleshed out some more. Then I was like, you know, we've done three revisions on this. Like, <laughs> do I have the job? And he's like, oh, yeah. Did I not tell you? Yeah, yeah. You're going to be ready for Fantastic Four. <laughs> and I was like, thanks. <laughs> um, but the thing with Fantastic Four is the book is older than I am, and there are people who have been reading the book since it came out. These are people who the Fantastic Four mean a lot to them in a way that Squirrel Girl ideally means a lot to people now, but she didn't mean as much when I started because she had had so much less visibility. That, that's not the case with Fantastic Four. You're literally following the steps of Jack Kirby, Stan Lee, all these amazing creators. Um, so it's a bit terrifying, 
but also I thought what I was doing, what I was intending to do was so different that I did not expect, um, I wasn't certain the book would be well, well received because yeah. previous runs, immediate Dan Slott's run before me and even those before him, they all tended towards the huge, the cosmic, the galaxy stakes, the multiverse stakes. And I was like, I want to do smaller stories about four weirdos rolling into town, finding a weird problem and fixing it for people. And that is, I think, I would argue that's the core of what the Fantastic Four do, but superficially it's so different than what they've been doing for a long time that it felt like this might not click, this might feel like it's wrong and yeah. maybe it won't last very long. Uh, so I wasn't, um, I wasn't, I wouldn't have been surprised if they were like, thank you for those six issues. We have chosen yeah. to go in another direction. Um, thankfully they, they were um, really well received and it's been great to to see that. It's also been really challenging because I pitch the kind of book I want to read, you know, standalone yeah. or two-part stories, each with a cool sci-fi premise, each with a twist as emotional core, all this cool stuff. Now I have to write it. <laughs> I have to write it every month. <laughs> yeah. And with Squirrel Girl, I thought of a new story every four months. And now I'm doing it every month. So it's it's harder than Squirrel Girl in the sense that it is a, I set a, a higher uh, challenge for myself. Yeah. Um, one that I maybe thought I wouldn't have to do for very long, but it's been really <laughs> gratifying to see it received and also fun to like, to, to do that, to put myself in the boots of, uh, well, what I realized was there, this has been done before, like in the sixties, the golden age of short stories, people would write, make a career writing sci-fi short stories every month and selling them to, to, to publications, to magazines, to yeah. amazing fantasy. And so um, I just imagine I am a sci-fi writer in the sixties and I'm in the happy position where I have this one magazine called fantastic Four, the world's greatest comic magazine. They want to publish my stuff. Yeah. So I've got this, this end to get those story published, but I think of it as uh, short stories with a longer running story in the background, more than a huge Epic. And that's a yeah. different way to, to slice up a piece of cake. But I think it, it makes it hopefully feel fresh because you don't know what you're going to get every month. That's what I love about it. We had one story where it's, you know, Ben Grimm in a time loop, then it's a town full of doom bots. Then it's Johnny becoming an organizer. And then you've got, you know, aliens in space where the fantastic four appear as enemies for most mm -hmm. of the issue and monsters. And the joy of the characters is that they've been around for so long, but they, they're so flexible, no pun intended with Reed, but they're like, they can go in these different directions. They can do these different things and still be the fantastic four. And as much as, you know, a squirrel girl, those stories were particularly Doreen green stories. The Fantastic Four are almost the opposite, where you can take almost any sort of story and turn it into a Fantastic Four story mm -hmm. by putting these great characters in it and seeing how they they play with it and bounce off those genre restraints and stuff. Yeah. I think when I realized what you were doing with the Fantastic Four, it reminded me of a conversation I had with Mark Russell here on our show, where he said, with a book like Second Coming, he's like, I had to have one good idea that I've gotten to run with for 30 issues. He's like, mm -hmm. with Traveling to Mars or Flintstones, I had to come up with 12 great ideas. He's like, that's so yeah. much harder. It seems like it would be easier to write a bunch of short stories. He's like, but no, because you also, yep. they all have to hit. You can't have a, well, like you said, part three of seven of an ongoing story like this. That's your whole narrative right there. And if it's no good, yeah. that might be someone's last Fantastic Four issue from Ryan North. I should have listened to that interview before I pitched the book. <laughs> but it's true. Like it is, it is harder because you're doing a complete story. And you get one shot of this at this. 
And the advantage for the reader is that, you know, every book is someone's first. And so it makes mm-hmm. it, I think, a much more accessible book. It's a book you can shove in someone's hands and say, I think you'll like this. I mean, that that's the hope for me is that at the end of this, there's more fans of Fantastic Four than there were at the start because they like the yeah. characters, they like the stories. And the only way to do that is to have a good story every month. Within yeah. their strengths, we give ourselves of one, their standalone stories or their two-parters at most. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think another big part of why your Fantastic Four is hitting so well for so many people is your ability to truly make it a Fantastic Four book. As much as I love the Fantastic Four, it tends to be the Fantastic Reed or the Fantastic Ben. And then mm-hmm. the Storms are also there. And Sue consistently gets the short end of the stick. And I, I've been so happy to see that this truly feels like a book where I can spend time with each of these characters that I love so much. They're a group of peers that are all operating on the same level. And we've even expanding this to include Alicia for the first time largely in your run. And I think that means a lot to people. Like I, we have read a lot of fantastic four on this show and the consistent critique complaint shortcoming is I wish Sue had something to do, or I wish Alicia had something to do. And it's, (laughs) it is wild. It, it feels like an insane thing to be true, but I, it was established so quickly in your run that she was going to be a dynamic character right next to Reed, right next to Ben. Yeah. She's and, a leader. Yeah. And it, it feels that way. Like it's not just said, you know, it's, I found a lot of the time, like the strong female protagonist of these books will do one big action moment that then will allow her to coast in people's minds for like seven issues. It's like, she's doing the same amount of things as everybody else. Like, she's not, mm. she did one really big thing. And we can point to that and say, like, look, she had her moment. And it means so much more to just see her as a peer to to read, as a peer to Ben, as a driving force of the narrative consistently. And it, I think the short story construction of your Fantastic Four, as daunting as it is, allows for so many more opportunities to let individual characters shine. Like, we, we've never had an Alicia Masters point of view chapter of any fantastic forever. And it was fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One of the, one of the challenges I've uh, been trying to hit is I want to do every, an issue focusing on every possible pairing. So we've mm-hmm. seen like Reed and Sue a lot. We've seen Johnny and Ben a lot. We haven't seen a lot of like Reed and Alicia or mm-hmm. uh, getting to see like the two storm siblings just hanging out in space talking about yeah how their life is going. Like that's the stuff I want to see. Um, it's funny. You mentioned the characters. One of the challenges I think of the book is that there are, you got the four fantastic four on the team. Then you've got Alicia's here at five adding in their yeah. kids brings you to nine major characters in the book and you've yeah. got 20 pages. <laughs> so it's uh, one of the reasons the kids were away for years. It gave me a chance to like, we'll spend a month with Ben and Alicia. I'll spend a month with Reed and Sue, a month with Johnny then they're all together. So we know who the major characters are and then we get spent time with them for a year. Mm-hmm. And now that the kids are coming back, um, I just, I need to make sure that I understand them and also the, the readers understand them because the more characters you have, it's the same issue with the X-Men, right? The more people you have in the X-Men, the less time there is to spend with each individual character. So you need to make sure that you are giving each character their, their due and their moments 
so that they feel like they're part of a team and they're not getting lost in the shuffle. It is an interesting issue to have to roll out nine characters and give them actually fleshed out personalities. Yeah. I feel like the one that would be most difficult for me to parse would be the difference between Reed and Valeria and figuring Mm -hmm. how their genius manifests differently in an interesting way. Are there any characters you're the most intimidated by that have recently come back from their year-long escapade? Um, I think of the kids, the one I found the most challenging to get my head around was Franklin initially because he's been around for a long time and he's done crazy stuff. He's, you know... Yeah. He's aged himself up. He's had God powers. He's created universes. He's lost powers. He's gone through all this stuff. And I was like, who is, what does that do to you? Like, who are you? Who are you after that? How do you, how do I know who Franklin is? And I had a uh, really great conversation with a friend of mine, Chris Butcher, where he told me Franklin was his favorite character and told me why. And I was it made things click. And I was like, wait, I think I, I think I have this guy. And I think I have a cool uh, concept for this guy. So in um, the dinosaur issue that came out recently, they mentioned Franklin having a secret. And mm-hmm. because I am so far ahead in the book, I'm working on issue 23 now, I think. Um, unless you seed things yeah. like that. So there is a Franklin issue uh, coming up now that, the kids are all coming back and that should be fun and exciting. So you get to see like what I thought of this Franklin character. That'll be fun. So I'm being so evasive right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's a lot of fun. It reminds me you're you sitting down and talking with a friend about why they love Franklin reminds me. I read an interview by Frank Miller for our dark Knight returns episode yesterday. And he talked about needing to understand what a hero does for a person before he can write them well. He's like, Hmm. Superman's easy because everybody wants to be Superman. Everyone wants to fly. Everyone wants to be strong enough to solve their problems. He's like, the big hurdle for me with Batman was figuring out what he did. And from Frank Miller, he said, when he realized that Batman was hoping that there was someone strong enough to come and save you from the scary things in life, unlocked the character for him. Hmm. I, I think it's interesting, therefore, that you, in talking with someone about why they love Franklin then can get your gears rolling about like, okay, what, well, how do I fulfill that then? How do I write to what makes this character special for people? Yeah. Yeah. I think you absolutely have to do that because otherwise you've got just a collection of attributes and, you know, any writer can fake it and, you know, Mm -hmm. have say Franklin in a scene, say some stuff, but if you don't know who they are or why they're saying this stuff, just saying stuff that sounds reasonable, that's not a character. And you can fake it for a couple issues, but eventually people are like, well, I don't like this, frankly. It's, nothing's happening with him. He seems hollow. Like, if you don't know what they want and who they are and how they sound, what their voice is, I find them really hard to write. I, I do a lot of, uh, I'll go for a walk with a mm-hmm. headset on, so it looks like I'm on a call. And mm-hmm. I'll just be talking to myself and trying to, like, answer these questions of what does what do these people sound like and, you know, the way they use words, the, the language they choose. These are all children. Two of them are aliens. <laughs> How does that affect them? Valeria is Dr. Doom's goddaughter. 
that's amazing. How does that affect how she sees the world? How does that affect people around her? Like all this uh, stuff um, helps them click into place, which is the work I think you need to do as a writer. If you don't care about the characters, you shouldn't be writing them and you won't want to write them. You'll put them in the background. They'll disappear. Yeah. Yeah. I, no one has disappeared yet in your fantastic four run. Yeah. And that, it's, it's, that sets it apart. I like, I like them all. <laughs> like, there's yeah. no characters that I do not like on that team. Uh, but I get emails being like, Oh, you know, when's, um, why don't we have this person show up? How come we haven't had these crossroads other characters? And I'm like, I have nine lead characters. <laughs> <laughs> like, I like it too. They're going to hang out with their people. But like when I bring in another character, that, that means less space for everyone else. And unless, you know, the Baxter building disappears again and four other different characters are on it for a year, <laughs> there's not a lot of room for bringing yeah. in other people at this point. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting inheriting a, I mean, you already touched on this at the beginning, but inheriting a group like the Fantastic Four instead of creating a group like Doreen, Nancy, Koi Boy, and Chipmunk Hunk, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there will be characters that you have left out for certain fans. And I imagine that's yeah. something that's difficult to come to terms with. Yeah, it's, I mean, like writing the X-Men, everyone has their favorite group of X-Men and you're not going to satisfy everyone. Uh, the thing that makes Fantastic Four so interesting is that this cast they have, which is huge, has been accumulated organically over decades. And a lot of characters we don't even think of as Fantastic Four characters anymore. Like Black Panther is so much his own character. No one thinks, oh yeah, Black Panther from Fantastic Four. Yeah. So there's this depth of relationships these characters have with other people and across the whole Marvel universe that makes it feel, makes it, it is lived in. It's been lived in for 60 years in a way that, you know, Squirrel Girl wasn't. I was making that up and betting it as I went. This is legitimately, you're following through in logical ways on choices that were made decades before you were born and will continue ideally decades after you're dead. So you, all you can do is try to make it as good as you can, I think. Uh, in that first issue of Task Four, I, I wrote about how uh, in the afterwards season of Letter Page that week about how uh, comics continuity is a weird thing where in theory, all the stories count, but in practice, we all remember the best ones and forget the worst ones. And that, oh, that mm-hmm. one didn't matter, doesn't count. And so all you can hope as a writer is that years down the line, people will still be talking about the story, still want to know more about the characters when you were writing them, what they were like. And that's interesting, right? Like normally when you write a book, all you can hope is that people will enjoy it. Mm -hmm. And you can have no reasonable expectation of this lasting. But in a series like Fantastic Four for a company like Marvel, I can reasonably expect, I think, that you know, years after I'm gone, people will still want to dig up these old issues and read them, even just out of a sense of completion. <laughs> so yeah. there's a, a larger sense of what these comics are will last longer than a normal piece of writing, which is kind of dizzying yeah. sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to throw it out there. I think having Alex Ross draw a Tyrannosaurus Rex Dr. Doom (laughs) is your piece of plastic in the Mariana Trench. Like if if your goal is to have somebody flip through a long box and go, what's this in 30 years? Like, boy, have you done it. 
there is nobody that's going to go past that without <laughs> picking it up and going, this has got to be something crazy. That's awesome. It's funny. There was a, a issue five, the cover is the fantastic four. And my, my pitch, my brief to Alex was, well, let's have them being rotated through four dimensions. So all that weird rotational stuff in the book, let's put that in the cover to look awesome. Mm-hmm. And he sent over, uh, I believe two or three sketches and the note was like, you know, um, I'm not sure if I'm nailing the four-dimensional rotation here. Ryan, can you like double check that this is correct? And I was like, man, <laughs> I asked you to rotate uh, three-dimensional characters through a four-dimensional space in a two-dimensional medium. <laughs> you did great. <laughs> this is awesome. Uh, don't worry about anything. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm giving you literally impossible briefs and you're producing <laughs> Uh, Alex Ross level artwork we're good <laughs> yeah yeah there's got to be a moment of like you drew kingdom come like you could do whatever you like thank you so yeah. much Alex Ross there's there's moments where I'm like I can't believe that every month I get to think of an image and then he will paint it yeah that's you've got the best commission list in the world frankly yeah that's pretty cool thank you so much for your time today. This was a delight. Oh, this has been great. These were really great questions too. Really made Thank me you. think. <laughs> Thank you so much. Do you have anything that you want to to plug or point our listeners to before I let you go? Yeah. Um, last year, Erica Henderson and I, Squirrel Girl artist, Squirrel Girl team, did a book called Danger and Other Unknown Risks, which is a standalone graphic novel we did together our own story, our own characters. It's about uh, a woman named Marguerite and her talking dog, Daisy. And they're on a quest to save the world, but things might not be as they seem. Uh, I, we're both like so pleased with it. It's sort of, mm-hmm. ideally, we think it react, recaptures that sort of the Squirrel Girl feeling, the Squirrel Girl vibe, but um, in a different world, there's magic. And I know we're both very, very proud of it. So hopefully you'll like it too. Yes, I listen. I've got some egg on my face right now. How did I not talk to you about? <laughs> like I did a whole episode about that on this very podcast, and I well, you've already talked about it. Did, I have. Listen, I guess I got it out of my system. It's a great book, <laughs> and if we didn't sell you on it six months ago, listeners, now you have to go for sure. You have Mandatory. to go pick it up now. Yeah, that's your homework, and you also have to read how to take over the world. Um, I will yes, make please. these comic book fans read a prose novel. Like they have yes. to do it at some point. Yes. It's good for you. There's pictures too. Uh, Kyle Bernardo did pictures for Heading for the World that are gorgeous. So it's there's still like it's not comics, but there's words and pictures intermingled. My yeah. promise to you. And I also I love that I can tell that you went to advanced schooling because there are footnotes in every single thing that you do. Love. I have never <laughs> felt more seen as someone who spent time in academia than reading your work and being like, we're on footnote D. That rules on this yeah, singular I mean, page. Whenever we got to the cross with two lines and how to take over the world, is like, Ryan, you're crazy. I love this. <laughs> What is the message on the bottom of the page in Squirrel Girl but a comic book footnote? They're in the DNA. Exactly. It's been here from the beginning. Thank you again so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye, everybody.